Hi everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1 through 4 of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at boschsecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to latest in our weekly update series, uh, joined by friends and colleagues Tony D'Onofrio and Tom Ian and our producer Diego Rodriguez. And uh, we're just going to take a quick trip around the world. Um, we haven't mentioned the last two episodes, but certainly want to and will talk about the Ukraine and uh, the absolute uh, and total nightmare uh, that the people of Ukraine that are there are going through um, and the impending uh, horror that's going to happen uh, around them and really eventually around the world, uh, all the what's happening. And then I think a lot of the Russian people that have uh, either no idea or totally non-supportive. In fact, even I saw today a brave young woman, uh, a newscaster in uh, Russia, uh, live on the air, did a protest and um, and she's now disappeared. Uh, so it, it, here we are uh, incredibly in the, in the 21st century um, dealing with the same thing. But I guess if we look back, it's what we deal with in crime. Uh, you know, the same uh, the same guy, Putin, involved in what he did in Georgia and the Crimea and poisoning uh, a couple of people trying to kill them or uh, in the UK. Um, former uh, agents that had <clears throat> turned on the the former Soviet Union. Um, you know, we saw what he what he did and his people in Syria. Um, and each time, I think, in his mind, he got away with it. And we talk about the erosion of consequences. And when you've got somebody that's that that's that wired that way, um, you can have real problems. Now we see just uh, the horror uh, of what's happening. So turning over to um, the pandemic for a minute here. You know, looking at some of the data, we see that um, the BA2 uh, variant seems to continue to rise. Uh, they, they look at wastewater. Uh, I know here at the University of Florida that they do the same thing. They monitor the wastewater. Um, they learned how to do that at the very, very beginning of the pandemic uh, back in 2020 um, as the to uh, places all around the United States and the world. So you're seeing a, a dramatic switch, hopefully. Uh, there, there's there is a signal, a pretty strong signal that uh, this uh, variant is on the rise. People that have never been infected are getting it. People that have been infected are getting it. Um, and so just stay tuned. It, it doesn't seem hopefully the data look like that serious um, other than it can be very lethal for the non vaccinated or non prior and, and who had also not had prior infection. In other words, their immune systems were naive still uh, to this virus. Um, and so uh, in Hong Kong and some other places where there was uh, lower vaccination rates and, um, and in some areas, lower uh, infection rates, uh, those people whose systems were naive, there seems to be particularly lethal. So, you know, we're still in this pandemic and uh, all of us just, you know, need to be alert, aware, act accordingly um, and keep moving on. Uh, on, the, on the vaccine front now, over 5 billion 
humans have been vaccinated. It's just an incredible effort in such a short period of time. Uh, in the United States, over a quarter billion, now 255 million Americans have been vaccinated. Um, so we continue progress there as far as uh, you know, making sure our systems are not immune to uh, this type of a virus. Uh, the, the upcoming 75 preclinical uh, additional vaccine candidates, we talk about this is going to be the way out of here down the road, um, uh, are still in uh, study and more uh, being added almost weekly. Uh, over 120 in human clinical trials, you know, one phase one trials, we've got 53 candidates, phase two, 49. You can see they're moving through the process um, in phase two trials, phase three trials, 50 more uh, vaccine candidates in final large scale trials. Um, again, 19 with emergency use authorization and now 12 uh, vaccines that have full uh, approval based on multiple randomized controlled double blind trials. Um, showing a, a tremendous efficacy and safety compared to um, the individuals that had randomly been assigned not to get the actual vaccine, but instead a placebo dose or doses, depending on the on the protocol. Um, looking at the therapy front right now, there's still 700 uh, COVID uh, or coronavirus type therapies uh, that are in being planned. 475. Uh, candidates, uh, therapy candidates in trials. There are 15 therapies with emergency use authorization and and really amazingly, incredibly, just one with full uh, FDA approval. So um, people are working away and um, on this and on every front on how to monitor, how to test, how to how to uh, vaccinate, and how to treat uh, this incredible virus uh, that's so persistent. Um, I know right now spring break is a big thing uh, in the United States for college students. Um, so it'll be another interesting natural test to see what happens with infection rates because uh, it's almost no holds barred in a lot of the places where um, where uh, the students are taking their spring break. Uh, but we see some of the other tragedies. We saw uh, several uh, West Point uh, cadets who um, and in this case, three or four uh, almost fatal or, or, or to be determined uh, ingested fentanyl, uh, a very strong, powerful, powerful opiate uh, derivative. So um, stand by on, on that. But what we'll do now is turn over to the LPRC front. Um, and a few things uh, we are getting out and about as well as others coming here. Uh, we've got live view technologies actually in our lab starting this morning. Um, and again, now just about weekly, we're having technology companies and or retail companies, our members coming in for tours and for strategy meetings, planning and so forth. Um, last week, uh, I had the opportunity to go to Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, spend the day with the uh, advanced auto parts uh, asset protection team, just over 60 professionals and uh, just an amazing time, uh, a great crew that deal with everything that we all know happens out there. Um, a lot of their stores are in areas that uh, present some particular challenges, um, but uh, we had a, we it was really a neat opportunity to go through and talk about uh, the framework that we've worked on for 20 years here at the LPRC. The idea of, of um, using situational crime preventions, uh, increasing the effort that a would-be offender would have to go through to be successful, uh, increasing the perceived risks the offender might perceive if they. Uh, progress on a crime event, 
um, and then also reducing the potential benefit or reward for a criminal offender. Um, those are just three of our techniques, our tactics, what we call the um, uh, action modes. Um, and so in this case, we we worked on those and then how to market those so that the would-be bad guy, the offender, uh, knows about them, uh, that recognizes them, and then uh, believes in them that they're noticeable, recognizable, incredible. See, get fear. Uh, and then finally, how to deploy those against what you're dealing with those pathways to crime, that red guy's journey to crime um, through five zones. And um, so we we went through the exercise, talked about it, and then they broke up into five teams. And we went through a real world uh, armed robbery crew that they are dealing with right now. Nine out of 24 South Florida stores have been hit uh, and with armed robberies. Um, so using mapping and uh, video evidence and other data um, going through and trying to understand why, why not? Why are some stores and not others? Why this brand and not other brands? Um, what tactics are they using and not others? Um, what are they doing? Are they evolving? Are they progressing geospatially? Are they, going, are they moving north to south? Are they, do they seem to be related to certain roadway systems or off ramps? Um, are they co-located with others? Uh, what's, what's going on? Why are they not hitting other places and times? Um, what, is there somebody on the inside or the outside? How is this, what's this look like? Are they progressing with, the tactics they use once they get on the property. So uh, it's amazing exercise they went through to A, solve, go back, storm and come back. Okay, what are ways that we could better prevent this type of um, a very dangerous, very traumatic crime event from occurring? Uh, armed robbery is one of the most dangerous things that can happen in our stores as we know. So we're excited about it. We have the opportunity coming up to go to Toronto uh, and work with Loblaw, uh, an amazing group of retail chains. Um, a corporation up in Canada. <clears throat> so their senior VP, um, Dean Henrico, uh, and I've been plating this, and uh, I'm really excited to get up there and work with Dean and his team uh, up there uh, north of the border. So stay tuned for more of that type of engagement out there. Uh, LPRC will also have a representation be presenting on um, a couple of research projects we're involved in at RELA, Retail Industry Leaders Association, at their annual asset protection conference coming up in Orlando. Uh, the day after that conference, we've also got a, an open house uh, and uh, we've got people that are signing up that want to come out to Gainesville from Orlando or uh, as part of their trip to and from Orlando for RELA um, and spend some time with us, whether it's an hour or a day and uh, go through tours and things like that. So if you're interested, reach out to Diego D-I-E-G-O, Diego at lpresearch.org. Uh, if you're a member and you want to come in here and spend some time with LPRC and our five labs, our lab complex, uh, and with our team, uh, love to see you and love to interact with you in a safe manner. Um, so I think uh, that's probably it from my standpoint. I'll, I'm going to update in much more detail on our SOC lab, our fusion net, uh, some of the initiatives that are going on in violent crime. Um, what we're doing with human activity and retail environments, the HAIR program, uh, ARCS program, and some of the other uh, amazing research uh, projects that are underway right now uh, with many more to come with our growing team. So with no further ado, if I might, Tony, I'll switch it over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Reed. And again, very good update. Uh, and I, I echo what you said, uh, really sad what is happening in Ukraine and uh, and really the, not just for Ukraine, but the world in terms of the impact that it's having 
on all of us. Uh, so I, I hope that uh, we get to a better place because the, I've been, I'm European, so I've studied the history and it's sad to see that we're repeating some of the same mistakes of the past. But uh, let me switch to uh, some technology updates. Uh, one of my favorite studies actually just got published this past week is from RIS News, and it talks about the state of retail technology deployments and the investments that are being made in retail. It's called the Store Experience Study, and the 22 edition, which was just published this past week, was subtitled Moving Beyond the Chaos. So we are moving beyond the chaos. A few highlights this year, retail sales in U.S., um, when comparing Q4 2020 to Q4 2021, grew an amazing 15.4%. Uh, revenue growth for this coming year, for, for this year, uh, again, before all this chaos that's going on around us, uh, was projected to be a respectable 6.9%. By channel, mobile uh, commerce is expected to grow 9%. Desktop e-commerce grow 8%. And store sales, so in-store, People walking in the store is expected to grow at a respectable 5.7% or nearly 6%. For the first time in the past decade, store count growth is not expected to exceed 3.2% and store remodel growth is expected to exceed uh, uh, store count growth. So we're remodeling more stores. This is due in part to the advancement and adoption of uh, the customer, the digital customer journeys that were popular during the pandemic, such as buy online, pick up and store, curbside, click and collect, as well as a more widespread adoption of self-checkout. Uh, and interesting that there was a, in the study, there was a 47% report of increase in use of self-checkout. Investment in stores tend to pay big dividends, and those retailers planning to increase in-store count for 2022 are expecting their enterprise and store IT spend to be 24% and 39% higher than those who do not plan an increase. Likewise, the expectation for annual sales growth in 2022 are 8%, 8.7% higher for those who are not planning a store um, uh, footprint increase. Industry from the studies is what's in the mind of the retail industry leaders. So these are the ones that are doing well. So this study defines an industry leader, any retailer that claimed a year-on-year 10% increase in sales or more. Leaders really shine when it comes to optimizing these new customer journeys that uh, evolved out of the pandemic. For traditional online transactions, uh, leaders processes were 41% more optimized than all other retailers. And that's important because all these new services actually take a lot of margin away. Uh, again, these are the buy online, pick up in stores and curbside. So you need to spend time and money to optimize them. And really that's what the leaders are doing. The numbers for uh, buy online, pick up in stores and ship from store and local delivery from stores were also impressive and exceeded all the other groups. For technology that is currently in use, leaders were 2.1 to two times more likely, as likely to have updated their point of sales software and hardware as all the other retailers. 
Further, they were more likely to have mobile uh, for their managers, mobile for their associates, um, and also uh, leaders plan to increase microfulfillment and robotics uh, in inventory operation by an amazing 600%. So more robots are coming to stores, especially for industry leaders. Uh, nearly half of leaders expect to have 5G deployed in their stores in the next two years, which reflect uh, a growth of 852%. Finally, over the next two years, leaders are expected a 778% in the deployment of voice recognition for order picking. The top three technology priorities for 2022 are upgrading the customer relationship management and loyalty program, personalizing the shopper experience, and inventory visibility. The top three emerging technologies for 2022 are uh, bigger wide area networks with 16% currently using it and another 17% deploying it in the next 12 months. RFID is number two, which again shows the continuous growth with 14% currently using it and another 9% deploying in the next 12 months and then microservices with 14% currently in use and 8% uh, planning deployment in the next uh, 12 months. Early adopters of the wide, the bigger pipe or the bigger wide uh, area networks are reaping the benefits uh, and are experiencing 39% higher profitability than those who did not invest in those bigger pipe. What that means is you're shoving a lot more data, you're doing better in analysis, and based, based on that analysis, you're doing faster and, and decisions that actually improve profitabilities. Those that have deployed RFID are placing a higher priority on inventory visibility, 10% uh, higher are optimizing the digital journey for stock fulfillment, again, 10% higher, and personalizing the customer experience, 35% higher. So RFID, a critical technology to actually optimize stores. And finally, from microservices, tier one retailers are leading that adoption with 55% already having this technology in place. So that's a really good study. I encourage you to look at it. It's in the latest edition of RIS News. It talks about where the technology spend is going forward. And let me end on a couple other quick, interesting sets of data from uh, Statista, uh, where, where are we at with 5G overall, not just in retail, so uh, worldwide. So uh, China leads the world with 29% of the technology deployed already as a share of total mobile connections, excluding IoT on the Internet of Things. By 2025, the adoption rate in China for 5G will rise to 52%. North America is second with deployments in 2021 at 13%, and by 2025, it'll reach 44%. Really surprised that Europe is only a 4% deployment of 5G right now in 2021, but it's gonna reach 44% by 2025. And finally, one of the big um, drivers of all this is smartphones. So where are we in global deployments of smartphone? And I bring this one up because to me, the smartphone was the third mega trend that change retail and understanding where the smartphone goes will keep digital acceleration going in retail. And again, the data from Statista, China leads the world 
2021 with 954 million smartphones in use. India second with 493 million and USA is third with 274 million smartphones in use. Uh, and all this data this week in terms of all this technology is again as a reminder for all of us that we really need to get engaged with LPRC. It's a great place to test and experiment and figure out which technologies do lead to that uh, greater profitability for the store. So with that, uh, let me turn it over to Tom. Well, thank you, Tony, and thank you, Reed. And uh, uh, as I stated last week, I was actually in Europe and Central and Western Europe and um, had an opportunity to talk to a lot of different people. And uh, it's very sombering to hear people that live in that region um, talking about what is going on in Ukraine and really the unknowns that are, are faced with it. So I'm going to you know, go through kind of my normal risk uh, piece here, and I'll start with the cybersecurity side and then move to some Ukraine things and then some geopolitical pieces. But just starting with cybersecurity, we often talk about ransomware, but um, there was a really interesting ransomware attack uh, on NVIDIA um, recently. And actually, uh, this was unusual because the demand was not to get Bitcoin, but was to actually change the hardware profile. So what NVIDIA did um, was... In the past, GPUs were used to, to crypto mine, not in the past currently. And so people were buying video cards and using the GPU power to actually mine cryptocurrency. So NVIDIA created a market and made cards specifically. NVIDIA normally makes video GPUs, that's their kind of bread and butter. They made specifically GPU rated cards to use for mining and other um, GPU intensive processes and not video or gaming, which is what kind of was the staple for them. And then they went ahead and realized that their core market that was being challenged. This is you know, not only due to the chip shortage, but the reality was people were buying up all of the GPU. And so gamers and people that use traditional video cards, they weren't available. So NVIDIA went ahead and locked down their video cards so they couldn't be modified to use for crypto mining. So this ransomware attack that happened and it's been very public, um, they, the ransomware encrypted and, and also, and this is kind of why I often talk about ransomware and a cyber incident and things molding together. Not only was the files encrypted, but they, these, this group has access to files and publicly said, Hey, we don't want your, we don't want money. We want you to reverse the software and your hardware to allow us to use your video cards to mine crypto. That was the demand. So why this is so interesting is because this is a, a really different methodology. When we talk about ransomware, traditionally ransomware has been to gather you know, funds and to use Bitcoin to generate money. And one of the things that we've talked about in this podcast is how prolific it is. But as governments and, and organizations react to the financial demand, there is this whole subset of basically, you know, someone holding you hostage to do what you want to do. And this is a very, very interesting one, but it's also going to be very interesting in what happens. So the the, the folks that um, are responsible for this attack gave a ultimatum and basically said, you have till Friday um, to meet our demands or else. And Friday has come and gone and NVIDIA did not meet their demands. So we still don't absolutely know what is next. We don't know what will come if they'll release files. It's always an unknown of what they actually have. But nevertheless, this is puts a constraint on 
you know, the business that that video is in, but it also opens up a door of, is this the new era of ransomware? Will we see things where people have IP and, you know, try to change things in the past? We have seen ransomware attacks and cyber instances where the breaches were people blackmailed, you know, on information, but it was almost always related to, I'll do this if you don't pay me. This is a very, very interesting turn of events. And regardless of the outcome, which it doesn't sound like NVIDIA is going to give in to the demands, I don't see that they would, um, but regardless of the outcome, it opens up a door to change, um, you know, the way criminals think and what their demands will be in the future. Once, you know, this is a fairly large, very public um, event. If this was done privately and they did it behind the scenes, would there be a different outcome? That's a that's a really big question. A lot of times with ransomware, we don't hear about it um, until much later on. And I know one of the very large unions, one of the largest unions in, in the country was a victim and of ransomware many years ago. And to this date, you don't know exactly what happened. It came out much later what they actually gave and did. No, so if gave up, paid, did. But I think this is a good example of you know, what, where cybersecurity and, and cyber challenges are going, that this is not just about the financial game, but sometimes it's about changing the direction of the business. So we'll follow that space and we'll continue to follow the risk space and kind of wanted to give everybody here in the listing base an update of what's going on and how it's different. Um, I thought that that was a really interesting one to share. And I, I think there's more to, to come with it. Now, still on the risk front, but a little bit um, kind of changing over to the uh, unfortunate and horrific events in the Ukraine um, is you have major cybersecurity companies, Avast being one of them, who are changing their profile. Not only are they eliminating, you know, Russia from a country where they'll support, meaning they'll blocking IPs and not, no longer selling, but they're also offering their services for free for Ukrainians to protect themselves from some cyber uh, incidents and cyber attacks. This is something that, um, in in some cases, is uh, you know, very, very corporate responsibility doing the right thing. And in other cases, it's just something that that would be done automatically and no one's really talking about it. So the, a lot of these cybersecurity and protection companies are limiting their licensing or ending their contracts with Russia and then actually giving free services to Ukraine. And it's somewhat behind the scenes, but this, the Avast one was a Wall Street Journal article that really talks about, you know, a, a major cybersecurity player, really, it's an antivirus and anti-malware software, but there are a lot of folks that are going, hey, how can we help support this from a digital standpoint um, and talk through it? So let's let's talk a little bit about the Ukraine from a technology standpoint, some of the things that we're seeing. Uh, one, one piece is uh, related to TikTok. Uh, TikTok is struggling really to find its footing in, in wartime is what the Wall Street Journal said. And when we talked about censorship and big tech in the past, you know, there was this challenge of Facebook and Twitter, uh, whether it be around the election, making decisions on, you know, how do they handle misinformation or information that could be potentially damaging. We see it with COVID where, you know, social media entities are really trying to figure out, hey, how do we um, not censor people, protect free speech, keeping in mind that there's no these are private companies. They don't have to protect free speech. They don't have to put anything on. But how do they're they're these huge companies in the, in the middle? TikTok, which is growing exponentially, has really struggled with this, and you know how they're going to deal with censorship and misinformation. And I did speak about this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast about how 
important it was to monitor if you are using social media as an open source intelligence or active intelligence tool to do the best you can to vet it because TikTok is having a tremendous amount of you know false flag or false narrative events, uh, videos being shown that are either not from that time frame, a different region, or just completely inaccurate um, posts and. What this, what this can do, and we know this from social media, especially with a big platform like that, is it can create hysteria. It can give a news agency misinformation, and it could actually influence a political decision. We've seen that here globally. We know that that happened. We know that the Russians meddled in the election. We know that um, there's science, you know, there's there's people that are taking fact and scientific data to show like human behavior is being changed by social media. So this is a, a, a really tough balancing act. And with that, Twitter and um, Instagram and uh, Facebook has not publicly come out and said it. They've kind of loosened up some of their guidelines to allow people to, you know, use it as a communication porter. And I think that, you know, when you're in this event, the the misinformation, the the very small percentage of misinformation being let out is more important to make sure people have an avenue to express what's going on, to talk, to communicate with loved ones. In in the same realm, there have been reports of folks that are in the Ukraine and Russia that are using services like Instagram and Facebook, who do have end-to-end -end encrypted messaging, um, that they're talking to friends, relatives, family members, and the calls are either being stopped in the middle or they're being blocked. So there is some cyber cyber espionage and some cyber events that, are, that the government, and you know this is somewhat speculative because there's no real evidence to support it, but it makes sense that these folks are making phone calls using you know, those services and end-to-end encryption, and then their accounts are blocked or disappear, or then their loved ones can't get in touch with them. Um, so that's something that we are seeing and we are hearing, uh, which leads me kind of to the next piece is, you know, we, I talk about the dark web a lot and talk about, you know, that the dark web is not all nefarious and that much like anything else, it started off with the best intentions. And unfortunately, the criminal element took uh, advantage of it. It's really about anonymy and it was a government, you know, project at the beginning. Well, here's a great example of why when I say 50% of the dark web is good is Twitter has actually all activated their services on Tor, which is the, the service, the onion router that allows you to use the dark web to allow people in the Ukraine and Russia to anonymously get on Twitter and be able to post. And if you went onto the dark web today, you would find roughly 10 to 20, maybe even 20% at this point of the traffic is related to things that are happening in that, in that region. And it's forms about how do I get out? Where do I get help? How do I communicate with my loved ones? And this is one of the things about the dark web that I think is often over shadowed by the bad things on the dark web. So I've often said, and there's a whole bunch of studies that come out every few years to support that more than half of the activity on the dark web is really just people wanting to anonymously communicate or research. And this is um, a place where the dark web really shines. Uh, there are obviously ways the government can block it and, and utilize it, but this is a method that people can get around proxies. And I'm sure we've all read you know, stories about Elon Musk uh, activating Starlink for free over the Ukraine. Um, this is just another leg of traditional internet service. Now, I was as close as 500 miles from the border 
Um, and what I heard was, however horrific it was, people were still able to communicate. I was asking people that had friends and relatives, uh, they were able to still communicate at this point, but it's still a very, very um, sombering situation. But this is a great example of how the, the tech Technology has both a dark side and a great side here where technology is allowing people to communicate, allowing this information to get out. And I think you know, Reed mentioned the the news reporter who disappeared, who on you know live news went out with a sign and protest. Well, social media allowed that to have global reach within a within you know a very short period of time. It, you cannot stifle that. And back even 10 years ago, it would be very easy for a government to stifle that. And what happened was that video was cut very short. Actually, during the, the broadcast, this lady comes out with the sign and she's protesting and then they cut the video to something else. Well, that video is all over the world right now um, and being shown in major news networks using the power of social media to drive a good message just as much as a bad message. And then I want to just talk a little bit about um, the geopolitical climate and some things that I think it's hard to not talk about and, and understand, but we we understand we're not I'm not going to get into the economics of it, but the supply chain challenges that we I continuously bring up. And I think um, we're starting to see you know oil prices rise, airspace limitations, which means planes have to fly longer and around airspace, which inherently slows the process down and drives the cost up. So uh, predominant, you know, only about 15 percent of uh, the GDP in Russia is related to imports to the U.S. It's a very, very small outside of you know, oil products that come to the U.S. from Russia. But there are a, a tremendous amount of products that drive by rail were in the past would go from Asia through Russia to Europe. And that that whole supply chain has been disrupted dramatically. Um, so I think we need to continue to keep our pulse on that in the retail industry of what will occur. The other thing here is the unknown of what will happen in the potential for war. So there's definitely something to look at. And while this is all going on, and you know, I think Reed, Tony, and I always talk about this is, you know, we talk about COVID a lot on the podcast here, but if you've noticed, the media has really slowly transitioned away from COVID, not because it's not important, but because the Ukraine is so important. But at this very time, you have a, a huge lockdown in China where there are major cities. I think I think the number was 51 million people were in lockdown in China again. And uh, granted, China is a huge country, so that's a very small penetration for China's one half billion. But when you think of 330 million in the U.S., just think of that's more than 10 percent of the U.S. population is locked down right now because of an Omicron variant. And th there are already ports and challenges that are occurring. So we need to be very cognizant of the potential for supply chain and not not letting that get away from us. And then last, but certainly not least, but I, I think it, it, it kind of reminds me of all of these things that are going on and how easy it is to not realize what's going on everywhere else is, you know, North Korea has been relatively quiet in this, but they just um, really, they did a missile test that they wanted everybody to really know about. And this did make um, international news, but it wasn't, I don't know that it was front page news with everything that's going on, but they did uh, two recent missile launches that uh, went into space, their intercontinental space missiles that were able to reach further than uh, the space station and they also, um, the International Space Station. So when we're talking about, you know, the, the, the brink of potential world war and all of these things, you have, I don't know, you have this 
challenge where North Korea is testing things. And, you know, what does that mean for us? Who knows what it means? I mean, I'm not going to be speculative, but what one thing that's very clear is that they're continuing to build up their arsenal. And these are not nuclear, so I want to make it clear, but these are extremely long-range space-driven missiles. So I think they're something that's been in the news but hasn't really been fully thought through or baked in is the whole space force concept with the United States military creating a space force. And there is an actual real need for it because what is occurring now um, in the Ukraine, if it did, if Russia did take an approach, um, and I'm not suggesting they would, to go to a nuclear war, there'd definitely be space war, you know, in that space. These missiles now are designed to go above the atmosphere. And and one of the things about nuclear war is an, an atmosphere a detonation which creates an EMP explosion it is sometimes more devastating than a direct hit because it locks out electrical grids and causes mass devastation. So North Korea, while we're talking about Ukraine and talking about COVID as we should be, you have um, these missiles being tested. So the world is still moving uh, at a rapid pace like it always is. and We're still on this evolution front, um, but all very, very concerning things. We'll continue to keep everybody updated here appropriately as the information becomes available. And as I always say, in the event that there is a need to activate the fusion and that we will, I think um, we're continuing to modify what that looks like in the future. But uh, as we're looking at these things, if there's a need to get information out to the membership in a more uh, seamless fashion, we have the capability to do that and we will. So with that, I will turn it back over to Reed. Wow. Thanks so much, Tom. Uh, a ton of information. Thanks, Tony. Um, amazing information uh, from both of you all um, in such a wild wor- place called the world. And we've long talked about that, uh, that we all live in a dangerous neighborhood called the world. And, you know, it's just that's human nature, tragically. And that's why uh, those of us that are in law enforcement, asset protection, loss prevention, security, um, as a as a as a provider, you know, of solutions and expertise uh, as a practitioner and so on are needed uh, to safeguard the vulnerable people uh, all around the world from all the threats that just uh, are nonstop, whether they are man-made or biological. So thanks to both of you. uh, And thank you to all of you listening out there. Um, Questions, comments, and suggestions are highly solicited here, are significant for us, we listen, we read, we want to ja- adapt and change um, to provide you the best information uh, to make the best decisions out there as part of the flow that you rely on of data. And uh, so we're always at uh, operations at lpresearch.org. Uh, the website uh, is lpresearch.org. Uh, so signing off from Gainesville, and again, a big thanks to Tom and Tony and Diego and all of you all out there listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast, presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council. 